What a great song. I found myself getting wrapped up in that line of, isn't it beautiful? Jesus isn't just a voice in the darkness. He makes the darkness tremble. That's a whole different level. Everybody doing all right today? Hope you had a great week. If you were a part of VBS in this place, it was a great week. It was a fantastic week. And I'm saying thanks again to everybody who, who volunteered and just made uh, it a beautiful week of seeing kids come together and loving Jesus. It was just absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, all the VBSs have been great across uh, Heart of Life in this season, and uh, it's just a part of, of the greatness of summer. I'm also going to go ahead and wish you a happy Independence Day. All right, it's my turn. Uh, we kind of been seeing some things uh, around us. That, uh, this is this is. Don't blow anything up on accident. That's 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 my advice to you this week. Don't blow anything up on accident. Look, I understand it's the Fourth of July and things need to blow up, right? That's just part of it. Things need to blow up, um, but it is my pastoral prayer this week. Lord, make them dangerous for Your name, and don't let them blow up anything by accident. All right. I'm serious. That way, everybody comes back safe next week. And next week, we're going to launch a brand new series where this one's going to kind of be a, an in-house kind of series. This, one, this one's definitely for us, the church. We're going to take a couple of steps back, and, and we're going to look at three areas that I think are specific to Heart of Life um, that I, I, we need to get better at. We need to improve, and we can improve. And if we choose to improve, not only will it position us better for the mission, but it makes Jesus' church more magnetic. All right? So I'm asking you, make an attempt. Let's be together the next, next three weeks. Um, it was, it's not long till uh, school's going to kick back. Sorry. School's going to kick back in, but it's going to be soon. Kind of everybody will be rallying back. These are some great weeks for us as a church to talk about some in-house stuff that, um, that we just want to see uh, us, us do better as we lean in, lean into Jesus. So today, though, we are wrapping up this series called The Greatest Show. And what we've learned is The Greatest Show is not our show. The Greatest Show is God's show. We're talking about the glory, the greatness of God. And therefore, the greatest life that you can live is one lived to declare the greatest God. So, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, here's what, here's what we have learned. It, it begins with what we call pursuing obscurity. What that means is we want to declare God's greatness. That means, yes, there is a light that is supposed to shine from our life, but the light shines on Jesus. We don't need the applause of people. Because we know how great he is, and our identity is in him. By the way, a great measurement for your relationship with Jesus, pay attention to how you react in the times when people don't support you or don't support your ministry like you think they should. If I complain or if I want to quit, it might tell me something about the importance of the applause of people in my life. It might mean a little bit more to me than I actually think it does. When I see his greatness, then, I, then I'm okay with pursuing obscurity. That leads us to be present intentionally. There's this unmistakable link. You love Jesus, you're going to love people. You can't just ignore people. You can't just run from people. You're going to show up in their lives. And when you show up in their lives, you want to engage meaningfully. That means everybody that God puts in your path. It may be people that make other religious people talk about you. Have you seen who he's talking to? Have you seen who, who they have coffee with, right? It means engaging in people's lives who may not be able to pay anything back to you. Sometimes you're going to stand in justice. Sometimes you're going to shock with mercy. And the key, stick as close to Jesus as you can so that you know what to do in which moment. Now, before I give you the fourth and final ingredient, there's a question, really, that sets this up, 
And the question goes like this, what kind of leader do you want to be? What kind of leader do you want to be? And maybe you would say, Jeff, I'm not a leader. And I would ask this question, are you a Jesus follower? And if you answer yes to the question, I'm a Jesus follower, then I'm telling you, you're a leader. If you follow Jesus, then you are called to lead. You are called for a mission. You are called to make an impact in God's kingdom. You are are always influencing somebody to either move closer to Jesus or to move further away from Jesus. You are always influencing if you are following him. That's called leading. And if you say to me, well, I'm not a leader, I'm going to answer you, you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be. If you're a Jesus follower, you're supposed to be leading. Some may lead groups of people. Some may lead one person at a time. But everybody who follows Jesus is leading. And so the question is, what kind of leader do you want to be? I'll explain. Here's the fourth ingredient. It is to live authentically. So I'm pursuing obscurity. I'm declaring the greatness of God. That means that I will show up in the lives of people. It means that I want to engage them in a way that really makes a difference in their life. But I'm telling you, this one, live authentically. Let me set the story up for you. If you want to turn to the book of um, Judges, in your Bible. It is the framework for a story that I'm going to tell you as we work our way through this. The book of Judges is toward the beginning. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. All right, so it's a little ways in, but if you start getting to the first and seconds, like first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, you went too far. Back up and Judges is right before it. God had given a promised land to his people. Israel. But there were still people who inhabited that land who would attack God's people. And so God used men and a woman, go figure. I'm just being sarcastic. Her name was Deborah, by the way. She really knew how to pin down a man. If you've never read the story, you should check it out in the Bible. Um, But Deborah, along with some men, they were what was called judges. They were judges for God's people. Now, don't think like a a person wearing a, a black robe, you know, sitting in a courtroom just making decisions. These judges actually led and protected God's people. They were more like warriors. One of them was named Samson. Anybody ever heard of Samson? Yep. What do you know about Samson? He was a strong man, right? We'll get to that. Here's where we're going to pick up the story as God speaks to Samson's mom, all right? Judges chapter 13, you can read the whole story from about chapter 13 to about chapter 16. I'm going to give you several verses um, in, in that grouping of texts, but Judges chapter 13, verse 5. Here's where we're going to pick it up. God says, you will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a what? A Nazarite. A Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. Now, that's unusual. We'll talk about it in just a second. He will take the lead. He's going to lead for me. He's going to take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, let's talk about this Nazarite thing. A Nazarite vow in that day was, was a way of God 
I'm going to use the word marking, identifying a person who was completely devoted to God. Completely. And so, most of the time, when a person made a Nazarite vow, they were older and they chose to make such a vow. But a couple of times in the Bible, God declares from the birth of a child that they will be a Nazarite. One is Samuel and one is Samson. Easy to remember because they're both S's, right? And so a Nazarite vow goes like this. You already heard a piece of it. No razor is to, is to touch their head. They do not cut their hair. They do not cut their hair. Second, they don't eat or drink anything from a grapevine. All right, now not just, not just wine, but like no grapes, nothing from a grapevine. And third, they are not to be around dead bodies. I didn't make the list. I'm just telling you what the list is, all right? So no razor, no cut your hair, nothing from the grapevine, no dead bodies. Let's just say that Samson kind of struggles with the details of the vow. And we're going to see that as we go through the story. Verse 25, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him, and this is the phrase that I want you to see, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the New Testament, all right, which is we live on this side of a cross and a resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, who has died for our sins, he, he rose from the dead. When we put our trust in him, he has made it possible, everything that needed to be done, that our sin could be forgiven, that we could be in a right relationship with God, and the miracle, the new birth that, that brings all of that about is the fact that God comes to live in us. His spirit in us. I understand that sounds supernatural. It's because it is supernatural. God's spirit in us. If a person is a Christian, then God's spirit lives and works in them. And nobody can ever take that away. Okay? That's where we live now. But before the cross and the resurrection, when we're reading Old Testament stories, that's not the case in people's lives. But what we see is that there were moments that God would put his spirit on a person. It was temporary in that sense, but he would put his spirit upon a person and we would see the difference that that makes in their life. Well, the Bible says that such is the case for Samson. The Spirit of the Lord begins to stir on him, and one of the uh, visible, physical results of that is God gave Samson great strength. That's kind of what we tend to know him for. God gave him great strength. Now, I personally question and we'll find out when we get to heaven, all right? We'll find out when we get to heaven, because that's going to be one of those, hey, God, can you play that back for me? I don't necessarily think Samson was a guy that looked like the Hulk. I don't. I, I, that's, you tend to see him in Bible stories, and he, he tends to be this big old, you know, just huge, right? I, I'm not convinced that that's what Samuel, or Samson, I'll say Samuel all day long because it's an S, but that's, I'm not convinced that's what Samson looked like because the key to his strength was not his muscle. The key to his strength was the spirit. And I'm not so convinced that, that, that he didn't look as scrawny as some of us. He just, God gave him great strength because of the spirit that was on him. For example, one time, he kills a lion with just his hands. And by kill, I mean he tore the lion apart. Let me read it to you. Check it out. Uh, chapter 14, you got to skip forward a chapter. Verse 6, 
Watch what it says. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. That kind of cracks me up. That's not, it's really not how we would talk about it today. But, uh, but he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. I think we got kind of a little freak out moment here. It's like this just happened and I don't even want to tell my parents because I don't know what's going on with me right? It's it's kind of this amazing moment. But what's it set up by? The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him. And I'm telling you, that's the pattern over and over. The Spirit of the Lord moves, and we see power in Samson's life. There was another time that 3,000 of his own people, the Israelites, came to Samson and said, we would really like for you to turn yourself over to the Philistines. That's the enemy. Like, well, why would you want that? Well, the reason we want that is because, Samson, if you will quit fighting with the Philistines, then the Philistines will keep fighting back against us. We're having to protect our families. If you just leave them alone, we could live in peace. Now, God's put Samson in a place to, to, to stand ground against enemies like the Philistines. That, that's what he's called to do. But the people are afraid of the fight, and they're like, if we can just turn Samson over, then things will be okay. And so they bind him with some ropes. And they turned him over to the Philistines. And guess what happens? The Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson, and when he gets in the presence of the Philistines, he breaks the ropes, and he whips a thousand Philistines. By whips, I should clarify, kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Don't you love the details of the Bible? In fact, the Bible says a fresh jawbone of a donkey, just in case that doesn't mess you up enough. This isn't some old jawbone that's been laying around. It is a fresh jawbone. Isn't that gross? He picks up a jawbone of a donkey, and and he kills a thousand Philistines after he just snaps the ropes that they have tied him in. That's the picture. Those are the stories that we know about Samson. But Samson also had a weakness. And his weakness was connected to women. Three stories that we know of. The first was a Philistine girl from Timnah. He falls in love with this girl. She is a Philistine. Of course, his parents are freaking out because she's, she's a part of the enemy. But he wants to marry her. She ends up betraying him, right? Which you're going to see a pattern there happen in, in Samson's life. She, she betrays him, ends up that they don't get married, and that's where the story of Samson somehow gathering 300 foxes, all right? Like the, the animals, foxes. He gathers 300 of them, we're told. He ties their tails together in pairs. So we've got 150 pairs of foxes with their tails tied together, which if that doesn't crack you up enough, he ties a torch within each of those pairs of tails on the foxes, then turns the foxes loose in the fields of the Philistines, and it burns up all their crops. I mean, he's not just strong, he's creative. That's awesome. But all that came about from this relationship with the Philistine girl. Then we're told woman number two is a prostitute. I'm just going to leave that one with you. If you can't figure out that's not headed for trouble, then I, I, don't, I don't know. This, this is trouble. This is the story that's attached to the moment that he picks up the city gate Like the whole gate, post, bars, everything, picks it up and walks up a hill and drops it on top of the hill outside of the city. That's a result of woman number two. 
And then woman number three, if you know any stories about Samson, this is probably the one that you know. Her name is Delilah. That's exactly right. She also betrays him. She also betrays him. The Philistines come to her. They offer her a boatload of money if she will tell them the secret to Samson's strength. And so she plays it sweet. It's like, come on, Samson, will you tell me? Will you tell me the secret to your strength? And he says, all right, I'll tell you. It's bowstrings. Bowstrings. That's the term that's used. And so you know what she does? She puts him to sleep. She ties him up with bowstrings. And, and then she shouts, the Philistines are on you, which by the way, in this whole story, we're told that the Philistines, every time this happens, they're hiding, just waiting to see if it actually works, because don't nobody want to mess with Samson if it's not really bowstrings. They've seen him snap too many right, ropes already. They've seen what he can do. She ties him up with bowstrings, says the Philistines are here. He wakes up, he just snaps the bowstrings. And she says, what? You don't love me? How come you won't tell me what the real secret to your strength is? He says, it's new ropes. It's new ropes. So she puts him to sleep. She ties him up with new ropes. Philistines are hiding. She says, the Philistines are here. He wakes up. He snaps the new ropes. And she said, I can't believe that you won't tell me the truth. I can't believe you won't tell me the truth. Nowhere in this story do we ever get Samson saying, I can't believe you keep tying me up. (laughs) Nowhere in the story do we get that. But I would submit to you that men have been much blinder in certain circumstances that I've seen in regards to relationships with the opposite sex. We will sometimes do some pretty interesting things and overlook some pretty dangerous circumstances. She says, come on, you got to trust me. I love you. you got to trust me. You keep lying to me. He says, okay. He said, it really has to do with the seven braids of hair on my head. Now, this is my favorite part of the story because I would do that, all right? If I had seven braids, not seven hairs, I, I would do that. I would, I mean, how cool does that sound to walk around with seven braids of hair? right on your head. For a guy like me, that sounds pretty cool. He says, if you weave those together the right way, you got to put a pin and there's all these details. He's like, I'll, my strength will be reduced to the strength of any normal man. She puts him to sleep. She weaves the seven braids together. Wakes him up, says the Philistines are here. He just destroys the pin, the whole deal. And she says, I can't believe. I can't believe you won't tell me. And the Bible literally uses the word nag. It's in the Bible. She nags him daily. And I'm going to quote this to make sure that, that, that I get it right. She nags him every day until he was sick to death of it. Somebody just related right there. Right? And he tells her, the truth about his hair. And it's like when he tells her she knows it, it's like the way the Bible describes it, it's like she could see it in his eyes, she could hear it in his voice, she knew this was the truth. And he tells her about his hair, he tells her how this represents a vow to God. If it's shaved, right, this, this, is, this is breaking this covenant of a, of, that represents a total trust of God And his strength would be just like every other person. And so, guess what happens? She puts him to sleep. She calls in the barber. And as they begin to cut the hair off his head, his strength begins to leave. Chapter 16, verse 20. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. This is one of the saddest lines for me in the Bible. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, isn't it 
Isn't that wild? All these times that the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him and he has experienced that strength, I mean, everything from picking up gates to to, to being able to defeat thousands of people, I mean, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him and he walks in power, but he has so marched down this road. And if we had time, you you can hear the progression of a man who just continues to, to seems to walk away, to walk away to the point that now he can't even tell when God's Spirit is no longer present. Verse 21, the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. They seize him, they gouge out his eyes, and they put him in shackles. It is a graphic picture, I'm convinced, physically, of what every person experiences spiritually when we choose not to trust God, when we choose to walk away from a relationship with God, what happens? There is a a blindness spiritually. We cannot see the things of God. And there is a enslavement to the very sin that we have chosen instead of choosing God. It is just the saddest picture. A man with so much, we would say potential, a man with so many stories of seeing God work. And now he's blind. He's in chains. He has no more strength than a normal man would have. But then comes verse 22. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, I remember learning this story when I was just a kid. I, I remember, you know, in Bible class, I, I remember this story being unpacked for us. And for me, it was almost painted as, or, or maybe it's just I tended to interpret it this way. Kind of, he, here's, here's what happened, right? They capture Samson, his eyesight's gone. They've got him on this, this wheel where he's grinding, right, the, the, the grain. And as he's pushing day after day, his muscles are what? Getting stronger. His muscles are building up. He's, he's getting stronger. And, and as the days go by, his hair begins to grow. And, and they're not paying attention. They're not paying attention. But his hair is growing longer. And his muscles are getting stronger. But I don't, I don't really think that's what's happening here. The length of Samson's hair was not the source of his strength. What was the source of his strength? Spirit of God. The length of Samson's hair was not the source of his strength. The source of his strength was the Spirit of God, but the length of his hair represented a relationship 
The length of his hair represented this vow. It represented this covenant. It represented this statement in Samson's life that he trusted God above all else. And therefore, no razor would touch his head, and he would not eat anything from the grapevine, and he would not be around things that were dead. Those were the covenant. That's a part of the promise that he had made. I think what it says that his hair began to grow again it is this declaration of Samson totally messed it up with God. But now, today, he can choose not to shave his head. I mean, he totally messed it up. Strength gone. But today, He can choose not to shave his head. It is a chance to trust God again. Now, I'm saying I think when you read the story, there is an obvious part to this because what happens is they capture him and they throw a party. Now, they call it worship. They're going to offer some sacrifices. But it's all these Philistine leaders who throw a big party, and as they're going to offer the sacrifices to their God for delivering Samson into their hands, that's how the Bible tells us it goes. This is, this is not something that happened a long, long, long time after they capture him. They capture him, and now it's party time. We're going to celebrate. We got Samson. Now he's blind. Now he's, he's in chains. Now he is our slave. There's not a lot of time for hair to grow. I kind of wonder if, if all Samson had at this point was like just fuzz on his head. Kind of like this. I wonder if all that he had was a little bit of fuzz on his head. And so they bring him out in front of the prison house. He's, the point is to humiliate him. The point is to make him perform. That's the word. He asked the servant who led him out there to position him near the pillars of the temple. The idea is give me something to lean against. But Samson's real desire is that there would be a moment where he wouldn't just lean against those pillars. He would find an opportunity to get his hands on those pillars. And as we read the story from Judges, he prays one more time that God would allow him to work on behalf of Israel one more time. What God had called him to from the beginning, this was what he was supposed to do. It was supposed to be about leading. It was supposed to be about protecting. God, would you give me strength one more time? And as the story we read, it, he, he pushes those pillars and the building crumbles. It is this final act where when you read it, you realize Samson participates in this final act in a different way than he seems to participate in any of the other stuff that goes on in his life. There is a difference in, in, in his request. It is, it is almost this, God, can, can I have just one last go? And not for me. Because I'm okay with going down in the middle of all this. And Samson gives himself away for the first time. And the Bible says that he takes out more of the enemy in his death. He takes out more of the enemy in this one act than of all the other acts of his life put together. It is suddenly a different picture of what a leader looks like. Anybody ever seen the movie Hercules? Not the one um, animated, but the, but the one with, with Dwayne Johnson. Anybody ever seen Hercules, Dwayne Johnson? You know what I'm talking about? The Rock in Hercules? Yeah, in case you've never seen it, this is what he looks like. 
Um, ladies, you're welcome. All right, this is, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is the rock. This is why he's playing Hercules, all right? Um, now, here's how the story goes. He, he's obviously um, in decent shape. I mean, um, he, he, in the movie, he plays um, a great fighter. But in this account of Hercules, what, what is happening is there's actually this secret team of people, in a way, that are behind him. And so he takes on these just incredible feats. Something needs to be defeated. He agrees to it. And what happens is when he steps into the battle, this, I'm going to call them secret, this other team of people tend to, to, to swoop in and, and they end up helping him win the battle. All right? And then he emerges on the other side with, with the cape flowing in the wind and he is mighty Hercules. Right? I jokingly say it's kind of like being a pastor. Sometimes you get credit for stuff, and the truth of the matter is there's like this whole bunch of people who are actually doing It's a great gig. It's a great gig. That's what happens in the movie. But there's this scene in Hercules where he's wounded. One of the enemy soldiers wounds the mighty Hercules. The God-man, Hercules, he, he actually slashes his shoulder. And in this scene, the captain of Hercules' army sees this happen. And he makes his way over to where Hercules is still fighting. And when he gets there, he covers Hercules' wound with his cape. And then he says these words. Cover up. Before your loyal army sees you bleed like a mortal. Hercules, cover up. Before all these soldiers see you bleed like a man. Let me translate that in our day. Never let them see you bleed. Never let them see weakness. Always be strong. But wait a minute. Then there's Jesus. And he's bleeding all over the place. And, and not just a little blood. I mean, not, not just a little wound, but enough to cover the sin of the whole world. It's a part of the good news that we declare, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So I'm taking you back to the question now, what kind of leader do you want to be? And I'm telling you that part of the struggle for us, part of the struggle in this whole journey is we want to be like Hercules sometimes. Who wouldn't? Did you see him? We, we want to be like Hercules, and I, and I want to prove that I'm a good leader. I want to prove that I know what I'm doing. I, I want to prove that I'm worthy. I want to prove that I'm strong. And when we really slow down and, and sometimes look at why at times we will refuse to step into a certain situation, why we will, we will refuse at times to engage, it, it's this perception of what if they don't know that I don't know what I'm doing and, and what if I fail? And, and so we, we want, what we really want is to be able to dress in a super suit and be on our way up as we rescue people. And all the while, the one we're supposed to be following whose name is Jesus, is on his way down. And he's taken off the super suit. And he's putting on skin. 
so he can bleed. His favorite title was the Son of Man. A connection, a relation to who we, we are. His, his, it was his favorite title, the Son of Man. It's the one he used more than any other. And here we are trying to cover the humanness. It's like Hercules trying to keep the myth alive. But the kingdom of God is not released like that. The kingdom of God is released by letting go. And you can't have both. You can't have both. What I tend to want is to be like Hercules with Jesus at my side. And you can't have both. Because Jesus' life is losing life. Jesus' life is willing to die to self. Jesus' life is I deny the I. Jesus' life is how low can you go? What kind of leader do you want to be? And if your answer is Jesus, then here's what you need to know. Leaders bleed. Leaders bleed. What I mean by that is leaders have wounds. And leaders have fears. And leaders have doubts. Leaders have weaknesses. Leaders make mistakes. Leaders bleed. And here's what Jesus would say, I believe. Leaders bleed and they let others see them bleed. Because leadership in this kingdom is not keeping the myth alive. That there is no weakness and there is no struggle. No, it is a part of what it means to live authentic, to live who I really am. Those first disciples, if you go back and read their story, those first disciples, I mean, come on, they, they saw Jesus die. They saw him rise from the dead. But you get the picture in those, those early days, those early years, they are going like they were told long before they get the whole picture. They're still understanding years later what, what all of this is about. And there are times that you, you see them struggle, and there are times that they try, and there are times that they are learning. And I'm saying that's a part of what I'm talking about when you really want to engage in the lives of people. That happens when I can live in such a way that I admit I am not above the situation, I am human, I bleed, I fail, it's okay. God's Spirit lives in me, and He's still working. But the reason He's still working is because I am often struggling. You see what I'm talking about? So here, here's why I think this matters. I'll just close it this way. In the Bible, in the Bible, it talks about the relationship with Jesus, whether you have it or whether you don't, is described as either being lost or found, right? And there's all those stories that Jesus tells about things that are lost and then they are found. And so he, there's lots of language. And so to, to be found, right, to, to know Jesus, to know this is what I was made for, it is to love him, to know him, to follow him, it, it is to find the peace and the, and the purpose and the, and the power that comes in, this is what I was made for. He found me. But, but to be lost is this picture of of forever searching. It is this search, and I'm always on the search, and no matter what I find and how much I find, there always seems to be something more than I'm missing. Yeah. Yeah. So can I, can I tell you a secret? Don't tell anybody. But I'm going to tell you a secret. Lost people and found people. Maybe I shouldn't tell you. No, I'm going to tell you. Lost people and found people. Sometimes. 
have struggles in their marriage. Don't tell anybody. Lost people and found people sometimes run into struggles with their finances. But don't tell anybody. Lost people and found people sometimes struggle with depression. But don't tell anybody. Here's why I'm addressing this. I think sometimes it feels like that the lost are the only ones who are allowed to admit that. Because we tell people, come to Jesus just as you are. That's what we tell them. Come to Jesus just as you are. All your mistakes, all your struggles, all your failures, all your sin, all your weaknesses, come to Jesus just as you are, and he loves you. But what seems like happens sometimes is that when you start following, if you're not careful, it sounds like the language changes from come just as you are to get your act together. And I want you to hear me. That's false. That is fake. That is not real. That is not authentic. Our God is always still growing us. He's working in our lives. It's because there are moments that we struggle. The difference is the people who are found, there is an anchor in the middle of that storm. It doesn't mean that there's not pain. It doesn't mean that there's not sometimes pushback. But it means that when you have put your trust in Jesus in the middle of the struggles, There is an anchor that does not move. You cannot be courageous when you are pretending to be something that you're not. And so when you engage people who are broken and we pretend like we're never broken, we are pretending to be something that we're not. We are really hiding in a prison of fear. We look like Samson. Chained. What would happen if the insiders would admit our pain? What would happen if the insiders had the freedom to admit when we struggle? What if the insiders had the freedom to say, I feel broken right now. I know there's an anchor, but I feel broken. What would happen if the insiders were honest about our struggles? I wonder if the outsiders would trust a little quicker, knowing they're not standing in the middle of a people who seem to be perfect. If we're vulnerable, if we're humble, if we choose to live authentically, here's the warning, though, that I give you. There may be times when people do not applaud you. (laughs) When you get cut, when you struggle, there may be times that people are going, whoo, good job, right? Because all of a sudden you bleed and you're not as perfect as they thought you were. I encourage you, that's when you agree and you point them to the one who is perfect, and then you declare, but he still chose to love me. Me who not perfect, he completely perfect, but he chose to love me. And he who never failed, he chose to become my failure, and he bled all over the place, and now he's my anchor, and he is the peace that I find in the middle of the storm. Isn't he just too much 
Because come on, he's infinite God. He always has been, always will be. He is infinite God in knowledge and power. He holds time in his hands. He is this infinite God who was placed in a manger? That's almost too much. An infinite God who turns the other cheek? That's almost too much. An infinite God who loves enemies and forgives. A God who actually came down so that we would know the way up. And the model he set before us is how low can you go? My question to you as we wrap this up today is, have, do you have eyes to see the greatness of God? Because if you can see his glory, if you can see his greatness, it changes everything. A small view of God will tempt you to elevate yourself, but a right view of God will lead you to deny yourself. You will love him, and then in turn, you will elevate the people around you. And at that point, welcome to the greatest show. What kind of leader? God, I'm asking you to help us today. God, we hear it. We can see the words of the text. God, that's the stuff we want written on our heart. But all the while, the message around us is a very different picture of what it means to lead. The message around us is don't show any weakness. The message around us is only show strength. Don't, don't. God, help us, help us to crave the applause that comes from your heart more than we would ever crave the applause that comes from people. God, we don't want to live in a way that is pretend. We don't want to live in a way that is fake. God, we want to be a people who are genuine, a people who are authentic, a people who are willing to be vulnerable. God, I'm asking that you would give us courage. I'm asking that you would give us faith, God, in the relationships that you put in front of us. As we show up, as we desire to engage, God, meaningfully, help us to be a people who are authentic. God, will you raise, continue to raise up some people around here who would lead the way? in being okay with letting us know sometimes they bleed. God, the result of that, we see it, it doesn't push people away. It moves people toward you. God, there may be some people today, they're bleeding, they're hurting. Got some people really struggling in here today. I, I pray that you would help them to believe that there is a freedom here and there is a safety here. God, that there is a love here that is for real. And that today you would give them faith to come to you just as they are. Just as we are. We come to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.